0: Hey, this is Mike Bob, and I'm a guy who used to make things, and sometimes I still do. These days, I prefer making podcasts, and I have a new one called Soundtrack to My Life. On this podcast, I talk to different creative people about the music that shaped them. Sometimes the conversations are funny, and sometimes they're just kind of sweet. I love that Pina Colada song. Yeah, I do. Rihanna has had a huge impact on my songwriting. I'm diving into the ocean, finding that one fish that has the toxins, and I'm just drinking those toxins all day. Maybe they're saying like you should now go forth and rock. It's like a peace be with you situation. We also have a playlist called F Jams. One and two. (laughs) Just in case.
1: We dance to a jazz version of My Favorite Things.
0: Soundtrack to My Life. It's available exclusive on Spotify. It's a sclusi. I'm going to try to make that word take off. It's a music plus talk show, meaning I can play songs in their entirety. So think of this as an interactive playlist with some of the coolest creative people I know. And you should know, too. Soundtrack to My Life. A Spotify sclusi.
1: Welcome back to Great Lakes Confidential. I am Abe Bernstein. And it's me, Al Capone. (laughs) It was funny the first time you did it. It's even funnier somehow now.
0: (laughs) I'm going to jump down a greener pipe (laughs) and smuggle the alcohol into the the Detroit.
1: (laughs) Pretty much, yes. It's a spicy meatball coming over
0: from Canada. Where they have shredded pepperoni on their
1: pizzas. Ew, do they? Yes, they do. Gross. Okay, that's... All right. So, today we're going to talk about the Purple Gang. What do you know about the Purple Gang? Anything?
0: I know that they are somehow Michigan-related. I have a friend who was going to write a screenplay about them and kind of gave me the overview but i didn't retain any of it and i'm also wondering if it is at all related to the gogol bordello song start wearing purple because it's polish right
1: uh these guys are jewish oh jewish yeah oh, okay well okay could still be gogol bordello is pretty um they get pretty political and 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 stuff with their with their music. So maybe. I don't yeah, know. Maybe. Could be. So if you're from Detroit, you've probably at least heard of the Purple Gang. They were Detroit's most notorious organized crime gang in the 20s and 30s.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like when you mix the Crips and the Bloods. It the red, is, yes. The red and the blue, you mm-hmm. get purple.
1: Exactly. And that's most definitely not how they got their name. But I love, I love the enthusiasm for. <laughs>
0: I am <laughs> confidently throwing out facts,
1: question mark. So we're going to start with prohibition in the United States. So the prohibition era in the, in the United States started in 1920 and didn't end until 1933. I would imagine most of our listeners know what prohibition was, but it meant that the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages was illegal In Michigan, the sale of liquor was actually prohibited three years prior in 1917. Do you know why that is?
0: Because there were too many anti-inhibition people around and drinking makes you anti-inhibited. And they're scared that Mardi Gras was going to make its way north and... Uh, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, super close. Um, Oh, really? (laughs) No. Henry (laughs) Henry Ford wanted a sober workforce. Really? Yeah. So he backed the Damon Act, which was a state law that prohibited all possession, manufacture, and sale of alcohol. So bootleggers in the Detroit area would then smuggle liquor in from Ohio and Canada. In 1919, the Damon Act was actually declared unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. But since the 18th Amendment was already adopted in 1920, declaring the Damon Act unconstitutional didn't really make a difference because now it was just illegal all over the country. So I wonder
0: if any of the restaurants at Henry Ford Museum Greenfield Village serve alcohol. Oh, they you know do. what? Yeah, they do because you they can do. on the holiday walks you can oh, Henry yep. Ford would be rolling over in his grave.
1: Probably very unpleased.
0: I was drinking spike cider. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah.
1: So, side note, I've talked about Belle Isle a thousand times, especially, you know, on this show. I love Belle Isle. Um, but there's a really interesting exhibit at the Dawson Great Lakes Museum on Belle Isle where you can see various ways bootleggers got alcohol from Canada to Detroit by using the Detroit River. Mm-hmm. So when the river was frozen, rum runners were able to drive their vehicles over from Ontario. But, of course, you'd have to make sure you didn't overload because you'd yeah. sink. You, know, uh-huh. you could break the ice. Um, but one of my favorite ways that rum runners would smuggle alcohol was in boats, So they would use containers that had like the alcohol in it. Mm -hmm. They would weigh those containers down with bags of salt or sugar and keep them in the boat. And then if they're like driving the boat and they can see police or anybody like coming like nearby, they would put the containers over the edge of the boat with the added weights of salt and sugar. It would sink down into the bottom of the river. The salt or sugar would then dissolve. And it would raise the alcohol back up to the surface so they could then snatch it up later.
0: That is some Bill Nye Science Guy action. I I like the resourcefulness of it.
1: So cool. Another way is that they had like these, they were kind of like overalls, but they had like, like cargo type overalls, I guess. They had pockets like all over, like around your body. And, you'd, and they would fit bottles in those pockets, and then you'd just wear a, a large coat over top of it, and you could walk around with your alcohol bottles.
0: I call those pants my shoplifting britches.
1: Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so back to the Purple Gang. Abe Bernstein and his brothers Joseph, Raymond, and Isidore were born in New York City to Jewish immigrants. When the boys were still children, their parents moved them to Detroit, presumably so their father could work in the automobile industry. During the boys' teen years, they joined a juvenile street gang, which was believed to be the precursor to the Purple Gang. It is said that they got the name the Purple Gang when two market owners were talking about the delinquents. The market owners may have been victims of the Purple Gang at one point, according to one version. The first guy said, These boys are not like other children of their age. They're tainted, off color. The second guy in response said, yes, they're rotten, purple, like the color of bad meat. They're a purple gang.
0: They're purple like Sean Cassidy's socks. (laughs)
1: What? (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Um, The purple gang was made up of mostly Jewish immigrants that all went to school together at Bishop School in Detroit's Lower East Side. From what I can tell, the school was located in Paradise Valley, which was the business and entertainment district near the residential area called Black Bottom. If you're unfamiliar, Black Bottom was one of the few areas where Blacks were allowed to live. Another side note, I think everybody kind of knows that I have an obsession with Detroit Public Television, PBS. So I watched Uh, a lot of, huh? Uh,
0: Yes. If anyone's spoken to you for more than three minutes, they know that. (laughs)
1: I have watched a lot of really cool documentaries on Detroit public TV and I've watched some about Black Bottom. There's one that is my favorite. I don't know if people, I don't know if normal people have favorite documentaries, but this is one of mine. Um, It's called Detroit 48202. Um, You can watch it online at pbs.org. And it talks about the history of like redlining in Detroit and Black Bottom and how the neighbors have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, but it follows it follows a um a postal worker from like it was just done within the last couple of years but they talk about black bottom and a lot of different things to do with redlining and where blacks were allowed to be and they touch on like the riots and it's very very interesting it's super great so if you have the opportunity um watch it on pbs.org so When the Purple Gang was just getting started, they primarily committed small thefts. They were known to be pickpockets at Eastern Market, which, again, it's crazy to find out some of these things have been around as long as they were. Like, Eastern Market has been around since at least the 1920s at this point.
0: The uh, original Eastern Market sort of like overhang thing has been moved to Greenfield Village now. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Oh, interesting. I had no idea. Um, Eventually, the the gang became students of well-known Detroit mobsters Charles Leiter and Henry Shore of the Oakland Sugar House. The Oakland Sugar House was a corn sugar outlet located on Oakland Avenue. Under the authority and direction of Leader and Shore, the boys' crimes became worse as they got older. They quickly turned to armed robbery, loan sharking, and extortion. By the late 20s, the Purple Gang was running the Detroit underworld. They controlled gambling, liquor, and the drug trade. They ran a wire service that provided information to local horse betting parlors. They hijacked movie theaters, forcing them to show prize fight films for a high price. They staged accidents to defraud insurance companies. They even began branching into other cities. The Purple Gang was also thought to be involved in over 500 murders in Detroit during their reign wow yeah so a line i never thought i would read which sounds funnier than it actually was quote between 1925 and 1928 a gang-controlled labor union for professional laundry services wreaked havoc on detroit end quote Hmm. so here's the story from the detroit historical society Professional laundry companies that refused to join the union, controlled by the city's infamous Purple Gang, were harassed and bombed. Union dues supported the Purple Gang's criminal activities, including rum running, kidnapping, and murder. The Cleaners and Dyers War, as it was known, ended when several members of the Purple Gang were charged and tried for extortion in 1928. In 1924, Detroit's professional laundry industry was unstable. Competing businesses vied for customers by keeping their prices too low to make a profit. In addition, tailors often didn't pay their cleaning bills, opting instead to take their business to a different cleaner. As a result, cleaners and dyers were struggling and wanted to organize, set pricing standards, and initiate other industry controls. Seeing an opportunity to bring organized, tri- organized crime to Detroit, Francis X. Martell of the Detroit Federation of Labor asked Chicagoan Ben Abrams to establish a cleaners organization that could be used as a front for the Purple Gang. Abrams founded the Wholesale Cleaners and Dyers Association, which pledged to stabilize the market by controlling prices and prevent tailors from switching cleaning companies without cause. Before returning to Chicago, Abrahams named Charles Jacoby Jr. as the president of the new association. Jacoby was the brother-in-law of Abe Bernstein. The Wholesale Cleaners and Dyers Association did little for the laundry industry in Detroit. Instead, it collected money to fund the Purple Gang's illicit activities. Dues protected association members from the Purple Gang's violence. Cleaners and dyers who refused to join the association were harassed by gang members who tossed stink bombs into laundry facilities, damaging goods. Thrown bricks, shattered windows, and gang members often left partially burned sticks of dynamite as warnings at plant doors. Business owners who openly opposed the association were often physically assaulted. On October 26, 1925, two independent businesses, Novelty Cleaners and Dyer's Company and Empire Cleaners and Dyer's Company, were bombed. In separate incidents, two vocal opponents, Sam Sigmund and Samuel Polikoff, were murdered. In 1928, Charles Jacoby Jr. and 12 Purple Gang members, including Abe and Raymond Bernstein, were charged with conspiracy to extort money. However, all defendants were found not guilty, acquitted of their charges. Although the trial marked the end of the Cleaners and Dyers War, it was the beginning of the Purple Gang's golden period of influence in Detroit. The cleaners and dyers war funded the purple gangs, illicit activities and they, and gave them valuable experience working with corrupt labor leaders and fraudulent businessmen.
0: That explains so much. Like anytime I've gone into a dry cleaner and I say, what is Martinizing anyway? And they go, forget about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that bananas?
0: That is so
1: crazy.
0: Like, that is like some breaking bad stuff where like a cleaners is a front for organized crime. Like, yeah, It makes me wonder if people are like, Ooh, uh, that's a really shabby collar on you there, Dwight. And Dwight's <laughs> like, yeah, but at least it's not supporting organized crime. Say,
1: <laughs> say. <laughs> hey. It's so like, when you think about organized crime, that's not where your mind goes like the the rum running and like you know murder and stuff like that but like that's the thing like people were murdered over laundry businesses like Uh because it was a front obviously but still it's just and again like it doesn't matter how many times we talk about some of these stories I am always so blown away to find out that this stuff happened on the soil that we live on and that we walk on every single day of our lives
0: less than a hundred years ago which yes you know I'm 51 so like less than two of my lifetimes that yeah it just doesn't seem like that long ago
1: it does not it's absolutely bananas
0: how do you manage to get the mustard stain out of my shirt <laughs> Mr. Juan, the cleaners, like, was he able, Mr. Juan is sleeping with the fishes now, dear. (laughs) We take our clothes to Mr. Bernstein. (laughs) Also, Bernstein Advantage.
1: Yes, I was just going to say, also, I, I am trying to like, I've been trying to find out if these Bernsteins are related to the Sam Bernstein lawyer, you know, law firm that's down here. Don't dig too deep. I know. I went there and then I was like, "Eh, maybe I'm just going to scale back a bit, you know? So I, but I can't find any information. And like, I was trying to like match up different dates and stuff. And it's still like, there's nothing anywhere that says if they're related or not.
0: If you get the Bernsteins on you, don't think Jumana is going to have your back.
1: (laughs) She's watching you.
0: (laughs) Yes, she is.
1: So by 1929, this is, an, again, another crazy fact. By 1929, there were 25,000 illegal saloons operating in the city of Detroit, which obviously meant big business for bootleggers. Yeah. 25,000.
0: That's sounds like there were probably more illegal places to get a drink then, than there are legal places now.
1: I know. That's what I was thinking, too. So the Purple Gang would also steal alcohol cargoes from other gangs. Um, Infamous gangster Al Capone didn't want to expand his business, but because of the success of the Purple Gang, he did begin doing business with them in order to prevent a bloody war. For several years, the Purple Gang supplied Canadian whiskey to Al Capone to sell in Chicago. The Purple Gang also began kidnapping gang members for ransom. Apparently the FBI even believed that they were involved in the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Oh, wow. The purple gang was also involved in the my, I don't know if it's Milo Flores massacre, which happened during the same time as the cleaners and dyers war. Basically Detroit was a huge mess.
0: You know, I once won a Canadian mist sponsored comedy contest and I have a trophy from them. I may have, a Mafia word in my home place.
1: My grandparents used to go to um, Canada quite a bit. Um, and um, every time they would bring home like a box of half gallon jugs of Canadian whiskey. Huh. Yeah. It wasn't prohibition time, clearly, but just like a weird, I don't know. So... I went um, through
0: um the duty free shop last time I had a show in Canada and uh exchanged money but this time like I I've never bought anything at the duty free shop before so this time I bought some odd flavored potato chips and some maple syrup candy bars <laughs> and uh so uh they did all this stuff where they needed my license plate number and all it was a whole ordeal. So when I got to the border crossing and they were like, do you have anything to declare? And I said, potato chips and candy bars. And they just (laughs) kind of looked at me like, just go away.
1: Just Just, go. Just go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So if you ever want to smuggle anything illegal in from Canada, buy potato chips and a candy bar And when they ask if you have anything to declare go potato chips in a candy
1: bar and, and they'll be none the they're wiser like,
0: they're like oh you're you're an idiot just you're american go. yeah go go ahead dork I'm sure you have so to get is- back to your dungeons and dragons game well, <laughs> well, I do i'm dming it thanks <laughs> i hope they
1: enjoyed this ketchup flavored potato chips gross so this is from wikipedia by the mid-20s the purple gang had formed a working alliance with former members of the egan's rats gang specifically fred killer burke and gus winkler i mean if you're named
0: fred killer burke then you know if that's how your parents name you you pretty much have a future in organized crime
1: exactly i was thinking the same Um, the Egan's rats were a gang that was in power in St. Louis, Missouri from 1890 to 1924. These two, Fred killer Burke and Gus Winkler and a group of gangsters associated with them were responsible for distributing purple gang booze and handling any strong, strong arm work that was needed. The trouble began on Christmas night, 1926, when saloon keeper Johnny Reed was shotgunned to death in the rear of his apartment building at 3025 East Grand Boulevard. Reed was an ex-rat and liquor agent for the Purple Gang. Earlier in the year, he and his St. Louis friends had gotten into a shooting war with Sicilian gangster Mike DePiza. The ex-rats defeated their opponent, but he was assumed to have arranged Reed's murder and revenge. Johnny Reed's killer was assumed to have been Frank Wright, a Chicago-based jewel thief and all-around hood who had recently relocated to Detroit. Wright, along with the new along with two New York burglars, Joseph Bloom and George Cohen, began kidnapping local gamblers for ransom. Many of the people they snatched were connected with the Purple Gang. The foolhardy trio crossed the line when they gunned down Purple Gang drug peddler Jake Weinberg in the North End on February 3rd, 1927. The Bernstein brothers hired Fred Burke and Gus Wingler to avenge their friend. Frank Wright was lured into the open with the kidnapping of his friend Meyer Fish Bloomfield. Winkler telephoned Wright and told him he could reacquire his friend in apartment 308 of the Milo Flores Apartments located at 106 East Alexandrine Avenue. At 4.30 on the morning of March 28, 1927, Frankie Wright, Joseph Bloom, and George Cohen arrived at the Milo Flores and knocked on the door of 308. As they did, the fire door at the end of the hallway opened and three men opened fire with a concentrated volley of pistol and submachine gunfire. All three gangsters fell to the ground. The three triggermen escaped down the back stairway once their weapons were empty. Bloom and Cohen were DOA. They had been so riddled with bullets, the coroner could not tell how many times they had been shot. Frank Wright was still alive despite 14 bullet wounds. When asked if he saw the killers, he moaned, The machine gun worked. That's all I can remember. Wright died of his wounds about 20 hours later. The shooting made multiple headlines in the local newspapers. It was the first time the Thompson submachine gun had been used in Detroit gang warfare. While searching Apartment 308, police found items implicating Purple Gangsters Eddie Fletcher, Abe and Simon Axler, Joe Honeyboy Miller, and John Tolsdorf. The day after the massacre, three Detroit police officers pulled over a car on Woodward Avenue and arrested Abe Axler and Fred Burke. While both men were suspected in the slaughter, neither was charged nor was anyone else. The incident solidified the reputation of the Purple Gang in Detroit. It was believed at the time that Fred Burke had been the machine gunner, assisted by Purple hitman Abe Axler and Eddie Fletcher, also known as the Siamese twins.
0: Mr. Wright was Mr. wrong place, wrong time.
1: Boom. That's bananas.
0: That is bananas.
1: And then like I love when I love when these stories have addresses to places that like like where things happen Do
0: you google map them
1: um sometimes i do i meant to do this like one day i was driving around and i was like i should totally google map these and then go and see what's still there and i haven't done that yet but i'm definitely going to that's cool yeah i wonder if there's like
0: bullet holes or anything
1: i mean probably maybe i don't know like would would they keep something like that like if the apartment building is still standing do you think that they would keep those
0: Well, I assume they have an anniversary party every year for the Tommy gun.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Obviously Tommy gun, Thomas. I didn't put that together until you just said that. Wow. (laughs) Do
0: You think my, my youngest child, uh, Harry two times Bobbitt, uh, has a chance to not go into organized crime. Well, maybe you guys should have, uh, reconsidered his middle name. Well, it's a family name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Benji trigger um, finger bobbit. I mean <laughs> that was just because we liked the uh the BTB,
1: the initials.
0: Mm. BTFB. Yeah.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. My um my middle name is Agent of Chaos. So um
0: that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that it means that your initials are triple A. <laughs> Got an emergency? Call the Agent of Chaos.
1: <laughs> the Purple Gang was suspected of being involved in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago on February 14th, 1929. This is probably one of the more notable gang-related massacres in American history. So I'm not going to go through all of the details, but seven members of Bugs Moran's North Side Gang were gunned down by four men, two of which were dressed as police officers. It was thought that Al Capone ordered this hit because he and Bugs Moran were both trying to gain control over the bootlegging, bootlegging trade and because Bugs had taken over some of Capone's saloons, claiming they were in his territory. You've heard of the Valentine's Day massacre, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, they celebrate it every year by giving a, a Reese's peanut butter Car- cup heart to Allison. Yeah. And I- Say, here's the gang on gang violence.
1: <laughs> the other thing that I always kind of like, because of the way my brain works, when I'm reading this stuff and I'm like talking, you know, and it's talking about like Bugs Moran and Al Capone. And it's like, these are names that we like grew up knowing, but they seemed so Hollywood. Yeah. And now to know that they're like, they're real people that were really here in Detroit, like just causing yeah. absolute chaos. Yep. It's mind-blowing
0: yeah you know the midwest part of the alleged mafia again like we said in the forebears episode the mafia does not exist it's a uh it's a racist construct uh created by liberal media to make us racist against <laughs> italian americans uh there's no such thing as organized crime these are good people that uh you know just have a lot of uh construction contracts and uh
1: yeah Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I agree. This podcast is a work of fiction. That reflect (laughs) the views of Mike Bobbitt at all?
1: Um, actually, I'm an AI um plant, so um, I don't really exist either.
0: Okay, good, 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 good,
1: good. (laughs) So the Purple Gang basically started to just kind of like fall apart after the um Collingwood Manor Massacre. So
0: Oh, and that's uh, how the Crips and Bloods came to be, because when purple falls apart, it falls back to its yeah. two primary colors. Yes, exactly. Blue.
1: Okay. Exactly. Um in my brain I saw like when you said that, I just saw like um like do you remember watching Sesame Street where they would like have different things and they'd like meld them together and then like you could like I could see like the purple crayon and then it just like split up into two okay
0: um you so the only person who can go from Crips and bloods to that reminds me of sesame street <laughs> <laughs> do you think elmo and grover <laughs> represent did i ever tell you the story about when i was driving for lyft and uber and i had like red adidas and i was wearing a red hoodie and uh i told one of my passengers that uh I was like, yeah. Sometimes I do get a little scared, you know, driving to like Inglewood and stuff like that, because uh, I don't want to get mistaken for like a, a blood or something. <laughs> and he was like, Phew, uh, uh. <laughs> you're you're never getting mistaken for a blood. <laughs> Hurtful. You're, you're fine. You're, <laughs> was like, you're
1: fine. You're gonna be okay. <laughs> but maybe I could
0: be mistaken for the blood's human resource manager. <laughs>
1: Yes, because they definitely have one of those. I mean, all good gangs do. I see
0: you passed your initiation, but
1: <laughs> we could, we should write a movie
0: uh-huh.
1: about gangs with like human resources departments.
0: Yeah, you're not sexually harassing enough. Um, <laughs> we're gonna need you to step it up. Uh, we're gonna put you on probation.
1: <laughs> and uh
0: you know maybe we can work out an action plan why don't you write up an action plan for me on uh how you plan to um smack hose? and
1: <laughs> we'll we'll come back to this in um 30 days we'll see where you're at and then uh and then we'll proceed from there yeah perfect um okay so the purple this is gang... a
0: learning opportunity it's not a punishment <laughs>
1: There's no such thing as problems or issues. They're just opportunities. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. You so the
0: Purple Gang. Back out there and pop some more caps.
1: <laughs> I mean, at the very least, this could be an SNL skit for sure. Yeah, uh, I,
0: I feel as though if we did not have really kind and loving hearts, it could also be mistaken for a really racist bit that could end up on a, like a, a Crowder type thing. So yeah. maybe we just let this idea go. You know
1: what? Yeah. Let's just finish this episode and we'll, we'll table that discussion for later.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So the purple gang.
0: Angie and are I'm gonna... both allies and do not have racist bones in our bodies.
1: Correct. So Collingwood Manor Massacre. So this is also from Wikipedia. Just so that we're very clear here. I did do a lot of re- research, but there was so, so many different things that happened. That it was like, there's no point in me trying to condense it and like summarize. So I'm just going to read this and then, um, yeah. So okay. the Collingwood Massacre. So after failing to pay back past debts to the Purple Gang, Ray Bernstein, one of the founders of the gang, developed a plan to kill the Third Avenue terrors. Bernstein would use Sol Levine as an unknown accomplice to the crime. Levine was a good friend of both groups. The plan started by buying an apartment at the Collingwood Manor Apartments. Bernstein then convinced Levine and the Purples had decided to let Leibowitz, Paul, and Sutker be their agents in the liquor business. A meeting was apparently set up to meet with Levine and the other men later. The meeting was called on September 16th, 1931. Levine and the men met up at 1740 Collingwood Avenue. After engaging in a quick conversation, Bernstein left to go start the getaway car. He waited for the sound of backfiring and honking the horn to cue the men left in the apartment to carry out the plan. Fleischer stood to his feet, pulled out a 38 caliber revolver, and shot Liebowitz at point blank range. Irving Milberg and Harry Kewell jumped up and began to shoot. That was not the first major massacre carried out by Kewell, who also took part in the St. Valentine's Day massacre along with other Purple Gang members. Kewell emptied his revolver into Sutker, and Milberg emptied his into Paul. While all of this was happening, Sol Levine watched helplessly as the men scrambled to save their lives. After the crime, Bernstein, Keywell, Milberg, and Fleischer fled the scene, leaving Sol Levine as the sole witness. The police took him into their headquarters, and after long interrogation, Levine finally confessed to seeing the murders take place and to who did it. The guns used in the crime had their serial numbers scratched off and were thrown into paint to try to get rid of any evidence linking back to the members of the Purple Gang. A ballistics test, taken shortly afterward proved that the guns had been used in the murders of Liebowitz, Paul, and Sutker. After the confession, an anonymous call was received by the detective's office. The message stated, Two of the men you want for the Collingwood murder are at 2649 Calvert. They will be out of town within the hour. Heavily armed, the police went to the location, which was owned by Charles Arbach, an underworld consultant and Purple Gang member. Ray Bernstein and Harry Kewell were arrested in their pajamas. The following night, Irving Milberg was arrested while preparing to skip town, but Fleischer disappeared. The examination of the Collingwood Manor Massacre began on September 30, 1931. Sol Levine appeared at the pretrial, but was frightened to testify against the men. Levine pointed to Bernstein, Kewell, and Milberg as the men who killed Leibowitz, Paul, and Sutker. He said that Harry Fleischer also took part in the shooting, but Fleischer was not present at the time. During his testimony, Levine focused solely on the prosecutor and did not once look at the accused men. In contrast, Bernstein, Keywell, and Milberg focused mainly on Levine, glaring at him during the trial. On October 2, 1931, the men were arranged before Judge Donald Van Zyl after a motion for dismissal of Levine's claim was denied. An order was issued for the men to be held without bonds. Testimony for the case began on November 2nd, 1931. Levine began his account of what happened on the day of the massacre. Eight detectives constantly guarded him and 10 stood guard during the trial with four on point as he testified, as he feared he would be killed during the case. Witness after witness went to the stand and testified against the gang members, claiming to have seen them run from the building after hearing gunshots. After an hour and 37 minutes, the jury returned with the verdict, finding the men guilty of the charge of first-degree murder. The members of the Purple Gang were convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole and were sent to Marquette Prison. Chief of Detectives James E. McCarty made a statement to the press. This conviction is the greatest accomplishment in years. Not only does it break the back of the Purple Gang, but it serves notice on other mobs that murder does not go anymore in Detroit. It was the beginning of the end for the notorious Purple Gang. On June 9th, 1932, Harry Fleischer surprised the prosecutor by strolling into the prosecutor's office with attorneys to turn himself in on the warrant for the Collingwood Manor Massacre. During the nine months that he was missing, he had been a suspect in many major crimes, including the kidnapping of Lindbergh's baby. By July 25th, 1932, the prosecutor, prosecutor, Harry Toy, was forced to admit that witnesses Solly Levine could not be found. The case against Harry Fleischer was eventually dismissed and the judgment against Bernstein, Kewell and Milberg was held. There was the option to reopen the case if new evidence was ever discovered. Abe Bernstein died March 7th, 1968 of an apparent heart attack in a Detroit hotel. I cannot find any other information on when his brothers died or where any of them are buried. Hmm. That was the end of the Purple Gang. Wow. Yeah,
0: Fleischer guy seems like he escaped just by going. I
1: couldn't have been doing that crime. I was out doing all these other crimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and like, and so much stuff that I read. The police. I mean, and obviously, like we've seen movies, right? We all know that the police are, you know, that there's always a dirty cop somewhere. Um, but there was no. a lot of yes no mike i'm serious i'm telling you the truth i wouldn't lie to you
0: i don't know
1: i promise they swear an oath to protect and to serve i know but these things happen bud i'm sorry i think you're mistaking the movie
0: training day for a documentary
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it happens
0: You know, it really didn't help that the paint that they dropped their guns into was purple. I mean, that kind of...
1: Mm. (laughs) That's the story of the Purple Gang. Wow. Yeah, so Abe didn't die until 1968. So again, that was like... You were already what?
0: 18 years old. (laughs)
1: Yeah. You're so hurtful. Crazy. Uh, I'd hug you if I was there.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't. Very congested.
1: So when how long ago was 1968? That was...
0: 54 years ago?
1: Yeah. So...
0: 56 years ago?
1: So in our lifetime was when somebody from the Purple Gang died. Yeah. And I would love to... Like, I looked on Find a Grave... To see if I could find out where they're buried. Nothing. No information. Mm. I googled each brother individually. With like various keywords after like Detroit. Or purple gang. Or died. Or you know. Anything. And there's literally no. Like I cannot find any information. Mm. So I don't know if my internet is just like. Nah you don't need to know all this stuff. Or. If they've just been erased from history. In that way but there's nothing
0: yeah that's odd
1: yeah that's what i thought so all of my information came from wikipedia the detroit free press the detroit historical society legends of america and Loststory.net. i uh
0: i still don't think that the mafia is real uh (laughs) but i enjoy this um look at the seedier side of Detroit's Alleged history Alleged It is good though that once they did get rid of the purple gang Detroit became a crime free um... Oh for
1: sure For sure yeah. <laughs> I was talking about this at work uh, The other day And an employee overheard me And was like um, Do you know that the mafia is still operating in Detroit And I was just like Not a conversation I want to get involved in then yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, um, I don't know the answer to that. She's like, well, they are, blah blah blah. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna go back to my desk and work now.
0: Well, I, I mean, and who knows for sure? But my research during the four bears episode was that that is not the case. But right. who who knows?
1: Who yeah, knows? I mean, I would think that they're not like operating just out in the open you know, like they
0: used to. I do remember one time, and this is why I kept thinking the Purple Gang was Polish related. I was at one of the uh, bars that uh, punk bars in Hamtramck. Uh, My friend's band was playing and a couple of very um, well-dressed gentlemen came up to the bar And the bartender, uh, their body language completely changed to where no one else in the bar mattered other than these two very well-dressed people at the bar. That's interesting. uh, Yeah. And I I asked my friend, Lawnmower Mike, from work uh, about, because he runs, I don't want to say what he runs, but he's very involved in the Polish community in the metro detroit area. Okay. Uh, so I was asking him if there is a Polish mafia still and he uh he was like I don't know probably maybe I I don't know. But uh it definitely seemed like a um that was the gist I got but then again I also watch too many movies. So who Yeah, knows?
1: I mean same. Yeah. You know, I it's not my business whether they're still operating cuz I i stay out of that stuff so you know if they are then they are if they're not then they're not but i don't want to get involved in it but i would i would i would find it hard to believe that they're not
0: i also wonder in this age of you know obviously no prohibition marijuana is legal in michigan like i mean i know there are harder drugs but um I I don't know unless it's like somehow related to you know like a Jimmy Hoffa and unions and stuff like that I I don't I don't know that it's all that lucrative for there to be organized crime but then again I I don't know you know well
1: gambling though gambling is still a big
0: yeah but there's legal gambling in Detroit too
1: yeah but that I mean I wouldn't think that that would stop you from from being involved in it, you know what I mean. Like,
0: I know how we can figure this out. Hold on. How, Alexa, is there still a mafia in Detroit? The Detroit Mafia is
1: still active, but on a smaller scale. It to function despite federal indictments on the leaders and members.
0: Okay, well, Alexa says, "Alexa says that the Detroit Mafia is still active, but on a smaller scale."
1: Well, if Alexa said it, it must be true. She knows all. She does. Yeah. That's kind of unsettling that an Alexa. Um... <laughs> it's a little unsettling. It's a little unsettling to know that Alexa knows about the mob. <laughs> oh, she knows all. I wonder if she knows where these people are buried. Alexa,
0: where are the Bernstein brothers buried?
1: With no other living relatives.
0: The brothers wish to be laid to rest together at DFW's National Cemetery. DFW's National
1: Cemetery. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Huh. With no other living relatives available, the brothers wish to be buried at DFW National Cemetery. Isn't okay. that Dallas Fort Worth though?
1: I don't know. I might have to go into I might have to go into a deeper dive here. Yeah. We might have to do a follow-up um, episode on this and see what we can find. Let me see. Alexa, am I funny? I bet you're funnier than a chicken crossing
0: the road. Huh. She said, I bet you're funnier than a chicken crossing the road.
1: <laughs> well, if, if we've learned anything today, it's that Alexa has jokes. So yeah.
0: <laughs> you, And you know why the chicken did cross the road. Why is that uh, to get away from the hail of bullets coming from the Tommy gun <laughs> first use in Detroit?
1: That would make sense. Yes, I could I could see that. So okay. do you um, do you have any idea of what we're going to chat about next time?
0: Not a clue.
1: Do Same. You? No, George and I had a like a birthday adventure last week for his birthday. That was a lot of fun. So, I mean, I guess we could talk about like something that doesn't require a ton of research. Just chat a little bit about a couple of things that we've done in the last couple of months. Okay. I don't know.
0: I've been to assisted living homes and. uh,
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Hmm. I
0: I haven't done anything.
1: All right. Well, we'll put some more thought into this. So. Okay. If anyone has an idea for a show, can they call? Of course. What's the number? It's 313-489-0739.
0: Cool. Or they can probably send you an email.
1: They can at Great Lakes Confidential at gmail.com. Cool.
0: Or if they didn't want to do either of those things, they could probably just join the Facebook group.
1: They could. Um, They could follow us on Instagram as well. Yeah. Um. They could send us smoke signals, carrier pigeon. We take it all.
0: Yes. I actually uh, Morse coded my script to you, mm-hmm. and which is why you okayed the, um, the Crips and Bloods joke. Because it turns <laughs> out you can't read Morse code.
1: <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> um, I do have an idea for a show because um, Marty and I were supposed to do this a while back a local Michigan author sent us um, a copy of his book and I read it and it's a great book and I'm going to pick it up from Marty's house tomorrow and get it to you and see if you want to take a look at it and we can both, I'll have to reread it, but we can both read it and then maybe we can have a conversation with the author.
0: Ooh, that sounds like fun.
1: Yeah, so. I also
0: discovered from uh, the past couple of weeks, I've done shows with Lansing comedian, lawyer, comedian uh, Nick Laydorf, and he has a bit in his act about how he was representing someone and the assistant Wayne County prosecutor's name is Luke Skywalker.
1: <gasps>
0: and uh, so I was like, I wonder how much of that is true and i looked him up and sure enough in 1978 this guy legally changed his name to luke skywalker because Watch. he was inspired by uh the um sense of duty and honor that the character had and uh i wouldn't mind seeing if maybe could get an interview with luke skywalker
1: yeah yes let's try that that would be awesome
0: yeah He's a guy who I think was already a lawyer in 1978. So he's an older gentleman and judging entirely by the picture I saw of him. I was like, oh, this guy does not seem like he might have a good sense of humor. But Nick said that he has a very dry sense of humor and said that I should go ahead and try to reach out to him. I love
1: that. Let's let's do that. Yeah. Um, The other thing that I was thinking about earlier that I do really want to start thinking about is um, a live show. Yeah. I am on new medications and I'm feeling less anxious about it than I was before. So I think that I think that we should start having some conversations about what the show should be about and where we can do it. So if anybody's out there that has something that you are, um, that you would like to see us do a live show about, or if you have a venue that you're a very small venue that you'd be interested in um, and hosting a live recording of great lakes confidential, please reach out. Um, I'm thinking it won't be for a couple of months, maybe like, End of spring, beginning summer-ish. Well, Um, I
0: I can get us a venue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so let's start thinking about that. So if anybody has any ideas of what they'd like to see us do an actual live show about, um, I'd love to hear that. So. Yeah. That could be fun. Perfect. And now that I've said it out loud, I can't back out. So. Right. So there we go. All right. Cool. Well this has been a fun episode. I I loved doing the research on this one and um, I'm going to post some photos of, of what gangsters looked like in the twenties and thirties. Cause uh, they looked very different than the way that they dress now. So um, I'm going to post a few photos of that and some, uh, I found some neat photos of uh, rum runners and uh, you know, different things that were going on during prohibition that I'm going to post on our Facebook page this week. So Yeah. A lot less
0: droopy pants and a lot more fedoras. I am
1: exactly. Yes. So, all right. Well, this has been fun. Thank you again, Mike, for always um, indulging me with these, with these episodes. It's it's been, it's been a really fun journey with you. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for laughing at my half cocked jokes.
1: I love your half cocked jokes. So (laughs) All right, well, in the meantime, you guys thank you again for listening. um, stay safe out there, watch for deer and text us when you get home
0: and don't uh don't do crime,
1: don't do crime,
0: yeah it doesn't I... it doesn't pay
1: <laughs> well, it does, but it doesn't,
0: yeah, I mean it does for a while, just
1: then uh, then it doesn't,
0: yeah, it sounds like that Fleischer guy made a pretty good run at it
1: for a for a minute, yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys later.
0: Okay, bye.
1: Bye.